Hi, welcome to Classics Unlocked, brought to you by Universal Music and Classics Direct. I'm Graham Abbott. It's funny how in classical music we tend to, or at least I tend to, lump composers together in pairs. Palestrina and Victoria, Bach and Handel, Haydn and Mozart, Debussy and Ravel. It helps in some ways to do this, to get some historical perspective on where composers fit into the sweep of history. But on closer inspection, it becomes clear that each of these composers is very different from the other. Bach is very different to Handel, Haydn is very different to Mozart, and so on. When I was a student, the names Bruckner and Mahler were also linked in my mind. I hasten to add that this was so because I didn't know very much about either composer except that both wrote big symphonies. Once I got to study these men and their work, it became clear that writing symphonies on a large scale is about the only thing they have in common. They were from different generations, born 36 years apart, had different mindsets, different backgrounds and personalities, different careers, different strengths and so on. Even their enormous symphonies are totally dissimilar in almost every way. Mahler's are very personal and very eclectic in their inspirations, while Bruckner's are more grounded in the classic symphonic form and more strictly formal. Bruckner never used voices in his symphonies, while Mahler often did, and often spectacularly. Mahler is now firmly established in the mainstream orchestral repertoire, and any performance of his symphonies is not only an event, but generally a popular one. Bruckner, less so. His symphonies are less flashy, less overtly emotional or related to events or stories, and this, coupled with their length, makes them hard work for some listeners. Orchestral managements sometimes regard programming Bruckner as a risk, and that's a tragedy. Once immersed in the sound world of a Bruckner symphony, the experience can be truly overwhelming and deeply moving. In this program, I want to give you a few signposts to guide you through the Bruckner symphonies. I hope this will encourage you to explore further. The recordings I'll use here all feature the mighty Vienna Philharmonic with a host of conductors recorded by Decker in the 1960s and 70s. The most obvious issue to tackle up front is the problem of the multiple versions of most of the symphonies. Many people tend to avoid Bruckner because of the fact that the composer regularly revised his symphonies, sometimes for good reasons, sometimes not, and opinions have always been sharply divided on the merits of one version over another. It's not always possible to say simplistically that the original version must be the best or that the final version must be definitive. It's very murky, to say the least. Bruckner's early working life was spent as a schoolteacher and church organist. He was highly gifted in both disciplines, and his earliest datable attempts at composition are mostly small-scale sacred works dating from the 1840s. Even up to the mid-1850s, he was ambivalent about whether he would follow a musical career or remain a schoolteacher. But with his appointment as cathedral organist in Linz in 1855, his life seemed to be taking him away from the classroom. Yet a feature of Bruckner's personality was a constant sense that he wasn't good enough, that he needed to improve his training and qualifications. While in Linz, he studied for six years with the famous Viennese theorist Simon Zechter, who decades earlier had briefly taught Franz Schubert. He then had lessons with Otto Kitzler, 
and it was in 1863, at the age of 39, as an exercise for Kitzler, that Bruckner wrote his first symphony, a work in F minor, which is rather reminiscent of Mendelssohn or Schumann. Bruckner later completely disowned it, although, interestingly, he didn't destroy it. Certainly, Kitzler wasn't impressed with it either, and Bruckner didn't regard his life as a real composer as starting until after he ended these studies, in July 1863. This F minor symphony is sometimes called Bruckner's Study Symphony, or Symphony No. 00. This is because he called his next symphony a work which precedes the official number one as number zero. The symphony number zero is in D minor, and it was composed soon after he ended his studies with Kitzler. It was written in Linz in 1863 and 64, and rewritten a few years later after he moved to Vienna, but not performed until 1924, nearly 30 years after the composer's death. Again, Bruckner rejected but didn't destroy his work. In later life, he wrote on the score a damning self-assessment, only an attempt totally invalid. But unlike the study symphony, the symphony number no. zero really shows the start of the mature Bruckner's style. It seems that he only rejected the work when adverse comments were made about it by others. We heard part of the third movement of number no. zero at the start of the program. By 1869, the year in which Bruckner revised the Symphony No. 0, he had relocated to Vienna to take up a teaching appointment at the Vienna Conservatory. While in Linz, he wrote a symphony in C minor, which would eventually become his official first symphony. Written straight after the Symphony No. 0, it was premiered in Linz in May 1868, and right from this point in the composer's symphonic output, we encounter the problem of versions. With the first symphony, the problem is not as great as those encountered with some of the others, as its two versions are clearly defined. Both date from very different periods of his life, and both have the composer's stamp of authority. This is the opening of the first symphony in the first version.
The mid-1860s were eventful and turbulent for Bruckner. In 1865, he met Richard Wagner, an experience he found profound and moving, and which laid the foundations for a lifelong friendship between the two men. Bruckner, generally shy and socially awkward, was overawed by Wagner and fascinated by his music, something which would have an effect on the symphonies soon enough. In 1868, Bruckner moved to Vienna, shortly after which he entered what one writer has called his first great creative wave of symphonic composition. Over the five years from 1871 to 1876, he wrote the second, third, fourth and fifth symphonies. The second symphony, also in C minor, was written in 1871 and 72 and revised in 1873 before its premiere that year. A second version with substantial cuts was performed in 1876 and these revisions continued until 1879. The composer went on to create a third version near the end of his life. It's the first version of the second symphony which is generally preferred today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Another feature of Bruckner's symphonies also becomes evident at this relatively early stage, and that is their length. The second symphony takes about an hour to perform. The first symphony isn't much shorter. Bruckner's timescale is vast and unhurried, even in the fast movements. In the slow movements, we're often ushered into a world removed from reality, where time stands still. In a program like this, it's impossible to give a true sense of the slow movements, as they have to be experienced complete. But the opening of the slow movement of the Second Symphony indicates the sort of world Bruckner takes us into. The whole movement takes about a quarter of an hour. Bruckner's third symphony is one of the most divisive when it comes to choosing among the available versions. 
and the process was convoluted, to say the least. The original was written in 1872 and 73 and revised the following year. In this version, the third symphony contains a series of quotes from the music of Wagner, designed as a tribute by Bruckner to his idol, whom he described as the unequalled, world-famous and sublime master of the arts of poetry and music. This original version, with quotations from Die Meistersinger, Die Walküre and Tristan, wasn't performed in the composer's lifetime. It was first heard in 1946. A couple of years after completing the original version, Bruckner substantially revised the piece, removing the Wagner quotes and making other alterations. This second version, which is 241 bars shorter than the first, is usually called the 1877 version, the year it was first performed, and it's the one usually played today. There is also a third version, Another 171 bars shorter again, dating from the late 1880s, which has further cuts and rewrites. There's a school of thought which maintains that in the case of the Third Symphony, the work deserves to be heard as it was originally conceived, that is, as a tribute to Wagner, with the quotes included. There are others who maintain that Bruckner's decision to remove the quotes was a wise thing to do, and that the quotes are in poor taste. Such things are never as cut and dried as some would have us believe. First thoughts are not always the best, and revisions might be undertaken for the wrong reasons. With the Bruckner symphonies, there is an enormous grey area, and opinions can vary widely. The opening of the finale of the Third Symphony is an excellent example of Bruckner's favourite way of starting a symphonic movement, namely with repeated musical cells which build and build. Sometimes, especially in first movements, these seem to grow out of nothingness, and even though the tempo is unchanged, they give the impression of a slow introduction. In the finale of the third, the little ascending pattern of four notes lasts for more than a minute before petering out and being replaced by totally new material. The fourth symphony in E-flat is Bruckner's only symphony to have a title given to it by the composer, who called it the Romantic Symphony. It was written in 1874, but this first version was soon superseded by two later ones, and not heard in its original form until 1975. The second version, the one usually performed today, developed in a series of stages between 1878 and 1880, 
and is usually given with the first three movements as revised in 1878, with a later revision of the finale dating from 1880. The second version was premiered in 1881, and Bruckner made further changes to it as late as 1886. In the late 1880s, further changes were made, involving cuts and reorchestration as well as structural changes, resulting in yet another version and it's generally believed today that the revisions leading to this third version were forced upon the composer by well-meaning but misguided pupils and friends. Indeed, many of the alterations were undertaken without his consent. Still, it's in the second version that the fourth has become one of Bruckner's best-loved and most approachable symphonies. It opens with one of the most haunting horn solos over tremolo strings. creative wave of Bruckner's symphonic composition ended with the writing of the Fifth Symphony in the mid-1870s. The tragedy of the Fifth is that it was the only one of his completed symphonies that he never heard performed. This is all the more so because it's a stunningly impressive achievement, especially in its finale, which combines sonata form and double fugue in a mind-bogglingly complex way. Twenty years later, in 1894, two years before Bruckner's death, his former student Franz Schalk, in a misguided attempt to make the work popular and accessible, performed the piece for the first time, but in an arrangement full of cuts and alterations made without the composer's approval. Bruckner didn't hear the performance as he was too ill to attend but it was Schalk's version that was eventually published and which remained the standard version of the Fifth Symphony for 40 years. 
At about an hour and a quarter, the Fifth Symphony is a monumental work with extensive use of contrapuntal features like fugues. The ability to overlay the classical symphonic form on the template of the Romantic Orchestra, all the while underpinning the music with the discipline of the Baroque fugue, is one of the special features of the Fifth Symphony. This is how it ends.
After completing the Fifth Symphony in 1876, Bruckner entered a three-year period of extensive revisions, with major alterations made to the Second, Third, Fourth and Fifth Symphonies. It's common to read that the changes Bruckner made to his symphonies were forced upon him by his students and friends. But the revisions undertaken at this time were almost all made at the composer's own instigation. Very few stem from external pressure. Then, in 1879, he started composing a new symphony, his sixth, marking the beginning of a second wave of composition. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. The Sixth Symphony reflects the journey of development Bruckner had undergone since ending his studies with Otto Kitzler in 1863. The trademark quiet opening is there, an opening which acts like a slow introduction without actually being slow. This is something Bruckner inherited from the opening of Beethoven's Ninth, where the basic elements build up over time to create the foundation for the movement to follow. But in the Sixth Symphony, he writes music which is very modern for the 1870s and 80s. In what turns out to be a stunning amalgamation of classical structure and romantic harmony, the tonic key, A major, is avoided at almost every turn. This is deeply unsettling and creates forward momentum in both the music and the listener's expectations. Far from being predictable, the fact that the harmonic basis is indistinct creates involvement and interest in simply finding out what will happen next. In the Sixth Symphony, the harmony is an end unto itself.
Bruckner only heard parts of the Sixth Symphony during his lifetime. The premiere in 1883 comprised only the second and third movements. All the movements were conducted by Gustav Mahler in 1899, three years after Bruckner's death, but in a heavily cut version. It wasn't until 1901 that it was performed in full. This is really the only authentic version of the Sixth Symphony, even though some changes in the published version were made by others. The Sixth took Bruckner about three years to write, after which he began work on the Seventh almost immediately. It was completed in 1883 after two years' extensive work and premiered in December 1884. In 1885, the composer made some revisions to create the Seventh Symphony as it's known today. In 1882, while writing the Seventh, Bruckner was in Bayreuth for the premiere of Parsifal, and it was there that he had his final meeting with Wagner. It was on this occasion that Wagner is supposed to have said, I only know of one composer who measures up to Beethoven, and that is Bruckner. In January 1883, Bruckner began composing the great slow movement of the Seventh Symphony, one of his greatest creations. The composer said that as he began work on this colossal edifice, it takes more than 20 minutes in performance, he realised that Wagner would soon die. And in response to this thought, the theme of the slow movement came to him. This theme is coloured by Bruckner's first use of a quartet of Wagner tubers. These are small oval-shaped instruments which are really modified horns that blend the sounds of horns and trombones. Wagner himself developed these instruments for use in the ring, and Bruckner used them right from the start of the slow movement of the Seventh Symphony.
Bruckner's fears regarding Wagner's mortality were well-founded. It was while he was at work on this movement that Wagner died. In the coda of the movement, there's a beautiful passage for two horns, the four Wagner tubas and the bass tuba, which Bruckner referred to as his funeral music for the master. The slow movement of the Seventh Symphony is only one of its glories, and all is not doom and gloom. It was finished in the September of 1883 and premiered the following year. It was the one work which brought him his greatest happiness and recognition. As before, Bruckner wasted no time in starting a new symphony almost as soon as he'd finished the Seventh. The Eighth Symphony was begun in 1884, the year in which he turned 60. It was completed the following year, but immediately subjected to some two years of revisions, meaning that the first version wasn't really finished until July of 1887. At around an hour and a quarter in length, the eighth is about the same length as his fifth, making these his two longest symphonies. The eighth was Bruckner's last completed symphony. The conductor, Hermann Levi, who had led the successful premiere of the seventh, was sent a copy of the score, but his response was unenthusiastic. He admitted that the themes were grand and impressive, but he balked at the ways that they were developed and at the orchestration. He encouraged Bruckner to think again. That was enough to undermine the composer's convictions, and from 1887 he began a second period of major revisions and rewrites. This time the impetus for these changes largely came from the negative comments of others. The Eighth underwent major changes in 1889 and 1890, and the revised version was premiered in Leipzig under Hans Richter in 1892. It was the only Bruckner symphony published before its premiere, and the revision became the standard version of the piece. The original 1887 version, though, wasn't published until 1972, and not performed until 1973. Since that time, it's been preferred by many conductors as not only representing Bruckner's original thoughts, but as also being more authentically his than the revised version. The Scherzo in the Eighth Symphony is placed second, with the slow movement third. 
After the massive slow movement, an adagio even longer than that of the Seventh Symphony and no less impressive, the enormous finale of the Eighth Symphony displays Bruckner's incredible contrapuntal skill. The form of the movement is extremely complex, a very individual type of sonata form using three subjects. But the most talked-about feature is the way the themes from all four movements are combined in this vast musical canvas. This is just a taste. Bruckner's second wave of symphonic creativity ended in 1887 with the completion of the first version of the Eighth Symphony. Sketches for a Ninth Symphony date back to that same year, although full-scale work on this didn't get underway until 1891, the year he turned 67. In the five remaining years of his life, his one overriding obsession was the writing of this last symphonic testament. Like the Eighth Symphony, the Ninth is structured with the Scherzo Second and the Slow Movement Third. But work on it was hampered by distractions, both good and bad. On the good side, Bruckner's fame was spreading further and further afield, and performances of his symphonies and choral works were becoming more widespread and acclaimed. Honours were bestowed on him, and his unique place in the musical world was at last being recognised. On the negative side, his health was deteriorating and this often prevented him from working. Despite this, he completed the first movement of the ninth in October 1892, the scherzo four months later, and the enormous slow movement, some 25 minutes long on its own, nearly two years after that, in November 1894. 
All Bruckner's available energies in 1895 and 96 were spent working on the last movement, but this was destined never to be completed. Even on the morning of the day of his death, the 11th of October 1896, he was at work on the finale. But despite 200 pages of sketches and some pages of fully worked out score, he wasn't able to see it through to the end. It's evident from what remains that Bruckner's Ninth would have ended with his greatest finale, combining a group of strongly rhythmical themes, a chorale, a recapitulation beginning with a fugue, and a motif from his joyous Te Deum of 1884 crowning it all. He's reputed to have said that if he didn't finish the finale, that the three completed movements could be rounded off by a performance of the Te Deum itself, but this has rarely been done. The Te Deum is so out of character with the completed movements, and as is the case with Schubert's Unfinished Symphony, the music we do have is so magnificent and fulfilling, so that in a very real sense, es ist genug, it is enough. Many attempts have been made to complete Bruckner's Ninth using the surviving sketches, but none has taken hold and become established. It's usual today to perform the three completed movements as we have them, and respectfully leave it at that. The symphonies of Anton Bruckner make up a staggering body of work. His was a mind unlike any other, and his symphonies are unique, often difficult works to come to grips with. Yet like all great music, and I believe the symphonies are truly great, they repay close study on their terms. Comparisons with Mahler or Brahms or anyone else are fruitless. Bruckner needs to be approached as Bruckner, the whole man, and not just the notes on the page. He doesn't disappoint. The recordings of the Bruckner symphonies used in this program featured the Vienna Philharmonic with a host of conductors, Claudio Abado, Horst Stein, Karl Böhm, Lauren Marzell, Sir George Schulte, and Zubin Mehta. The exception was the extract from Symphony No. 0, in which we heard the Royal Concertgebouw Orchestra of Amsterdam, conducted by Bernard Heitink. My thanks to Tom Ford for the technical production of the program. We can only end with the final moments of the slow movement of Bruckner's Ninth. It's a small taste of a gigantic musical feast, but I hope it inspires you to explore further. Catch you next time.
Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.